it's not a question of being able to get as many of my preferences satisfied as possible. It's rather a question of do the things that I can give have any significance or meaning in the lives of others and that's where we become meaningful. Welcome to the World Worth Living In podcast. The podcast where we explore the two main purposes of education. Number one, that education can help us to live well. And number two, that it can help us to create a world worth living in for everyone. This podcast is part of a global project where researchers are listening to different groups of people, discovering how to live better and how to create a world more worth living in through education. This is a podcast produced by the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. We wish to acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nations as the traditional custodians of the unceded lands on which we teach and learn at Monash, and we pay our deep respect to their elders past and present. We would also like to acknowledge the Wiradjuri people, one of the nations who has lived for over 60,000 years in what today is called New South Wales, where other members of our team work and live. The Wiradjuri term, Yindiamara Wenangana, shared with permission from Wiradjuri elder, Uncle Stan Grant Sr., has been translated into English as the wisdom of respectfully knowing how to live well in a world worth living in. It's my great pleasure today to talk to Nick Haswell and Peter Korkman, both based in Finland. Nick Haswell is a Finnish-Australian researcher currently based at Tampere University in Finland. His main research interests lie in the intersections between refugee welfare, education and eco-social living. He is co-founder of the creative working group We Who Smile, which organises art projects in refugee centres throughout Finland, giving asylum-seeking children and youths the opportunity to share through storybooks and animations their stories with the wider community. Peter Korkman is a Finnish filmmaker, songwriter and knowledge activist. Peter is interested in helping research projects with culturally and socially important messages to engage more actively with arts-based methods, both in the initial stages when setting up their research methodologies and then in the dissemination of their results. Peter has a PhD in philosophy and has extensive experience of working as a professional researcher at the Helsinki Collegium for Advanced Studies. Welcome to you both. It's great to have you here. Nick, we might start with you. This is something we're asking all our podcast guests. When you are living well, what does it look like for you personally? It's a very interesting question. Well, I, I guess I feel like I'm, I'm living well when I have a balance in life. So where every part flows in harmony together. So for example, in family life, I have two kids. I'm living well when we're all happy and healthy, living together in work life when I'm engaged and progressing in creative and inspirational activities. Yeah. Perfect. Great. Thank you. Peter, over to you. 
I've actually been thinking about this question a lot. I started out as a philosopher and I'm that by training and a historian of ideas. So I think it may look on the surface of it as if the question of what is a meaningful life is at the center of today's culture with all the self-help guides and, and wellness talk. But that's not the whole truth. So in Western academic disciplines, like in philosophy specifically, the question has typically been relegated to the stuff that you can't study. The idea is that we all have individual answers to the question of the good life, that we all decide for ourselves what it is that makes us happy or that it is a question for ourselves to decide at least. So the role of society in this is simply to allow individuals to pursue the satisfaction of whatever preferences they might have. So as a historian of ideas, I have a pretty clear understanding of why Western modernity has taken this approach to the question of the good life. So in early modern times, the question of happiness was intrinsically interwoven with religion, and religion had become a divisive matter, with Lutherans and Calvinists and Presbyterians and Catholics all bashing their, each other's skulls in, in order to gain a position where they can help the other one to become happy and gain salvation. Very nice. So it seemed like a good idea to say that each individual citizen should be free to pursue whatever happiness they themselves deem to be worth it. So we have philosophers like Hobbes or even more perhaps Locke saying that fundamentally it's a question of preference of whether you like plums or apples and so on. This is still pretty much the doctrine in, in, in Western philosophy. Questions of the good life or what really makes life worth living tend to be viewed as things that you can't have solid knowledge on or that you can't discuss inside an academic discipline. And to some degree, I think our societies are built on the same assumption. What societies can do to help citizens become happy is only make sure that as many citizens as possible can satisfy as large a portion of their needs and preferences as possible. It kind of chimes well with capitalist society structures. So happiness is the citizen getting things for her or them or him himself. And uh, I think I'm not particularly original if I say that I don't buy it. Non-Western philosophy and ancient thinkers in pre-modern times have had a lot to say about the significance of others. And I think that's one of the very important points in this project as well. It goes against something that is an established doctrine and sort of permeates a lot of, of Western modern thinking. I think each one of us, you guys, me, everyone we meet, who has gone through at least some experiences in life and come out on the other side, we have a feeling that we do learn something about what it is that makes life worth living. And as Nick said, if you've had kids or been in responsible for some other person's well-being, you know what that does to you. It makes what you do in their lives significant and meaningful. And being meaningful in this way as part of the life of other people is, I think, at least part of an answer, for me personally at least, as to what it is that makes life worth living. So it's not a question of being able to get as many of my preferences satisfied as possible. It's rather a question of, do the things that I can give in this world have any significance or meaning in other people's lives? That's sort of a fundamental thing, I think. And I think ancient philosophers like Aristotle and, and the ancient Greeks had borrowed a lot from non-Western philosophies in saying that a person who can live outside society without relations to other people is either a beast or a god. Uh, I think that's a very good point. I mean, being human is being enmeshed in the lives of others, and that's where we become meaningful or not so meaningful. And that's also a very important question, I think, that this project also to some degree dwells on. And that's where I want to come to a sort of more specific point since some of the sort of 
main energy and raison d'être of the, of the project is to create room for thinking that might lead to better policies with regards to refugees, immigration. It's very important to see how big a role it plays that you have the possibility to do something meaningful that means something in other people's lives. And this is something that comes out very, very beautifully in a lot of the things that the young people who have been interviewed in the project are saying. Yeah, so maybe we could um, come back to Nick on this point and get a little more sense of the project. Nick, you are the, the lead author for a chapter titled Keeping Each Other Safe, Young Refugees' Navigation Towards a Good Life in Finland, Norway and Scotland. This chapter draws from a broader project called Drawing Together. Tell me a little bit more about that project. Yeah, sure. So the Drawing Together project, it's the first major study to explore young refugees' well-being through a relational perspective. As Peter alluded to just before, um, the main aim of the project is to gain insights into how young refugees form and maintain social networks in their post-displacement lives and how well-being is generated through these relationships. And now in our book chapter here, we wanted to, to explore this process of building new lives and social networks through the lens of social and moral navigation. So in other words, we wanted to understand more about how young refugees as social and moral beings think about their social networks and the ties between and how they find their way through the complex and unstable circumstances of resettlement. From there, there comes a, a discussion about how this kind of navigation can be viewed as a process of living and coming to live well. Great, thank you. One of the aspects of the larger World Worth Living In project is that this has been specifically a listening project, listening to lots of diverse groups of people. I wonder if you could expand a little bit more on these young refugees. The people we were listening to were participants of the Drawing Together project. They're all former unaccompanied minor refugees, uh, which means that they arrived to their host country. They arrived there as children, and now they're young adults with permits to stay in their host countries. As I said, there were three groups of participants in the project. So there's one based in Finland, one in Norway, and one in Scotland. And in each group, there was a mix of males and females, and they were all between 18 and 30 years old. They are mainly from Middle Eastern countries and some from Northern Africa. For the bigger projects, we had a lot of different avenues of, of discussion with them. But for this particular chapter, we were focusing on questions that we asked them at the beginning of the project. We had these welcome events at the beginning of the Drawing Together project, where we brought everybody in and we were getting to know each other and discussing the, the aims of the project. So get a, an initial sense of how the participants understood and thought about well-being in their lives. We did a post-it note activity, so a short kind of question and answer activity. Some of the questions we were asking, for example, what does it mean to live well or to live a good life with others? What do other people mean to you and, and what do you mean to others? How do you look after each other? What does it mean to care for others? Those kind of questions about hospitality and reciprocity, caring and sharing. The responses the participants gave to these questions, they were written on post-it notes or in some of the meetings we did online, so they were on these online whiteboard programs. That was the data that we used for this chapter. 
Great. That might uh, be a good place to just pause on the chapter specifically and turn to Peter. You play quite a unique part in this project and I wonder if you could describe what you have been doing with these young people in the broader project. Sure. I was involved when we were planning this project and we were thinking about various ways in which we could involve the young people as not so much objects of questioning, as it were, as as people who get interviewed by somebody else, but as agents, as people who are giving something of themselves. Again, I think this rhymes well with what I was saying earlier about the importance of having something meaningful to give and how that might be something that you don't get enough occasion for when you're landed in a country where your social relations might, locally speaking, might not be so rich and strong. Who can you impress and who can you give things to and gain the significance and meaning in a social context through those? So art can be one channel of giving to the world. And so the idea of having these art workshops as a research setup, where the artworks that these young people produce are part or even a starting point for how they get to talk about their lives and significant events and significant people. That was a very important idea quite early on. And and we were discussing various art forms. In the end, we went for visual arts combined with me coming in with the camera. And so as a former researcher, I think easier for me perhaps than for somebody who comes from completely from outside the academic world to discuss with the researchers how we should do this how we should make it feel safe and the emotional side of things is very important when you're trying to create something that captures a moment in a good way and that conveys the genuine thoughts and and reflections that arise in a moment. So I've been there for most of the art workshops with the cameras. Unfortunately, COVID uh, made, uh, made it difficult to be in all of them. I've been there as a cameraman and also been involved in thinking about how the art art making is made part of the research setup. One part where we've cooperated with Nick, for instance, having the artworks that the young people produce, having them photoed during the workshop so that you can later on, you can see the emergence of the artwork from an initial object that the young person brings to the art workshop and that then forms kind of a starting point for a drawing or collage or other form of art. And this then was sort of the starting point for interviews and discussions and so on. And a bit later on, I've then been been there with the cameras for slightly longer interviews with those young people who would like their thoughts to be in a series of short documentaries that I'm producing for the project. That's my role. Fascinating. I wonder if you could perhaps expand on the music part well, yes. Uh, actually, uh, that was one of the initial ideas I had, but that uh, that we we didn't really do in this project to to create songwriting workshops. We use rhythmical elements and melodic elements as we speak and words, and that's all you need for a song. <laughs> so we're all songwriters as human beings, as communicating beings, and I've run a program of songwriting workshops for young people for over ten years now. So so I, I do know that everybody can write a song. It would have been fun, but we didn't really have quite the time or, 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 or resources to, to organize songwriting workshops workshops on top of all the other art workshops and, and stuff that we have. The project has created very strong social bonds. So the young people involved in the different countries meet each other also outside of the project, and many of them have learned to know each other through the project. So that social component has been very, very, very important. And at some point in Finland, we did an outing to a summer cottage where I brought my guitar just on the off chance 
one of the guys there was uh, playing the guitar and, and singing songs with his friends. And, and that's how it went as well. So we now have a very nice bit of footage of, of a singing moment, which is wonderful. It's a very nice together moment. Yeah, great. One of the things that I love so much about this project is the creativity that is on display in so many different ways. There's an aspect of the project that we haven't really discussed yet, which I find very fascinating in terms of what a research project can look like. And I'd just briefly like to mention it, because in this project, some of the young people have been in the country longer. Perhaps their language skills and, and, and their social networks are stronger. So some of those have been invited to be ambassadors who, uh, to some degree, take care of the other participants in the project. And this has been a wonderful way of giving an active role as co-researchers or co-searchers or co-finders. There's a collegiality between the researchers in this project and the young people involved as interviewees. They're much more than interviewees and even much more, I think, than art makers. They're forming a community where the researchers are one part. And there's many interesting examples of how this has worked out socially in practice. Two ambassadors in, in Glasgow wanted to interview the researchers, which resulted in a three-hour interview with many very sharp and critical questions, but given with a lot of smile and, and giggling. So it, it was really warm and at the same time intellectually and, and even morally challenging situation where many dimensions of what it is to interview people coming from the background that you come from. There were no unnecessary barriers. You can ask these questions and remain a very good working community or even become much better through it. So there's a lot of trust, a lot of collegiality as I said, between the people involved as professional researchers and the people being interviewed. So that's the part I find absolutely fascinating. I hope more research projects will be built in this direction. I know there's a tradition of this that has been earlier important at uh, Tampere University under different names, more in, in journalism studies, but still it's it's kind of novel. At least I, I haven't seen done this way in any project. I'm really glad to hear of the ambassadors and the agency that they felt within the project. It's uh, amazing. Nick, might come back to you. This project has been, you know, quite expansive, I guess, in the ways that you have sought to understand what is the experience of these young refugees. What other learnings about living well for these young people? So when we were looking at their responses in terms of social and moral navigation, we saw three types of movement happening. So firstly, we saw a movement with others. So meaning how participants intentionally and purposefully formed ties to and maintained ties within social networks. So this included everyday companionship where caring and sharing takes place. For example, general socializing and, and shared activities or exercising together or learning a language together, for example. And in this kind of movement, there was an emphasis on, on paying attention to other people. So for example, paying attention to what makes other people feel good. And in a second kind of movement, we saw it as moving for others and a more of a moral dimension to it. It was seen in compassionate actions like helping others in need, or giving love and strength to others. And with this kind of movement, the idea of being present for others, it seemed significant. So being present, like listening and being a witness to others. And a third movement we saw as moving in relation to others, moving with and, and moving for others, it's relational in, in different ways. We saw also another kind of movement that isn't necessarily with or for 
or any particular people, but it's a movement in the way that participants try to find their own position in relation to others. So for example, participants refer to their roles and responsibilities as members of families or communities, as informing their movement through social and moral environment. Yeah. Is that sum it up? Yeah. I mean, I particularly love in the chapter, this metaphor of movement and navigation that is threaded throughout. So, and I think you've summarized that really nicely. Thank you. Peter, for you helping the young refugees express experience through creativity, what do you think living well means for them? It's a good question. It's also, I think, really where the interviews and the artwork, and I need to stress perhaps that in the art workshops, there were professional visual artists who were working with the young people. So I was only involved as, as the camera person, but yeah, I was in, involved in the beginning to think about it. And, and I think the results are impressive also in how they have made me rethink, I think, my view on, on the a meaningful life. I generally think that many of the insights you can gain from discussing life matters with bright young people like this at the, and, and people who have a lot more life experience perhaps than you'd like to have at that age. But you really do gain a, many rich insights into what it is meaningful about living together. I really like some of the more poetic things that these young people are saying, but also many of the very mundane reflections. There's one that's really sort of become my favorite. Some of the trees are very old and broken. They lean on each other and they hold on. To me, it's absolutely amazing. It's not just human beings that can help each other. Look at nature. The trees are encouraging, holding each other's weight, as if they are saying, yes, don't worry, I'm holding you. We are not finished here. And I really love that. I don't know if it's me getting older, but but I'm <laughs> I'm just sort of getting so much new insights from so many of the things that these young people are saying, not only for, you know, a better understanding of questions that I've been interested in both during my academic career and after it, like questions about immigration and refugee situations, but sort of more broadly in terms of an understanding of life. I love that quote, Peter. Thank you. And I really love that response. And I had to giggle because you anticipated my next question. And so I might throw this question back to Nick then because you've just answered it so nicely, Peter. But Nick, from this project, what life lessons have you drawn? I guess from the findings of the chapter, we were looking at what a world worth living in for all looks like from the, I guess, from the the response responses that the participants were giving. There are these movements with and for and and in relation to others as part of that living with other people in a world worth living in for all. In their responses, they were were talking about a lot of different kind of qualities like that have moral dimension that I see as as very important, as important features of a world worth living in for all. For example, love for all, hatred for none, truthfulness, trustworthiness, honesty, helping each other, helping people in need, respect and respecting other people's lives. And then also there, there was this other dimension, which I think is, is really vital. So this idea of living in a world worth living in for all. The idea that, that our care for others and, and concerns for others, it, it should extend beyond humans to the world itself and, and to nature. And some participants actually talk specifically about this. And there's, there's one uh, quote, for example, that 
looking after each other is is not just about humans. So I really like that, and I, th- I think that's kind of at the heart of this real question about what it is to live well in a world worth living in for all, is that it's for ourselves, it's living with others and for others and in relation to others, but it's also living in, in, in that way with nature itself, with the world. So it's really finding that kind of balance with it all. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. Both of you have just given examples of quotes that acknowledge the need to look after not just each other, but the more than human world as well. And I think this is a a really big takeout for all the people that we've listened to. This is my final question. And I might start with you first, Peter, and then come back to you, Nick. After working with these young refugees, after listening to what they've got to say, after listening to how much they value being with and for and in relation to others, what would you say more broadly we as humans on planet Earth need to do to live in a world more worth living in for all? Yeah, it's a very good question and it perhaps precisely invites to view the question as a universal one because I think many of the struggles and many of the things that that the young people that we were interviewing have been talking about, they are present in the lives of my three children. I mean, the need to be seen as a person and as somebody who can contribute meaningfully to a social context that's universal, although obviously what was being studied here was also some of the dimensions of the specific situation of people who are creating rules for themselves in a new country. So it brings with it added challenges. But the sort of universal need for that is clear. And I don't think it's sufficiently recognized either in the work that is being done to integrate refugees. And this is something that comes out in the interviews as well. So many of the young people are very thankful for the sort of peer group activities that exist, where young refugees who have come before help those who come after them. And and also many of these young people who have already been some years in in their country, whether it's Scotland or Norway or or Finland, gain enormous satisfaction and and sort of a sense of self from being involved at the other end of those activities and being able to help other people who are coming in. But the activities could be anything. It could be football, it's, it's, it often is. It could be playing drums and making music together. It could be really anything. But it would be very important to realize how big a role it plays in the life of people who come here without having ready-made social networks to rely on. How easy and efficient and... <laughs> inexpensive it would be to really focus on helping people getting to know other people it's it's as simple as that it's a very basic human need but it really makes a tremendous difference and this comes out in all of these interviews but it doesn't end there in a way since the observation is more universal in some of the discussions and this is just an example but it reflects a a larger sort of uh, reality in terms of football playing for instance the problem with football is often that if you go to a typical Finnish Norwegian or Glaswegian or, or what have you football team, it's going to be very, very football oriented and everybody just goes home directly after having played ball. And this part of how our society, especially today, works, we're sort of very uh, oriented towards results. It's not just going out there and playing some ball. And as a contrast, some of these peer group football teams can be more based on being together, having fun, going out for a pizza afterwards and socializing. And I think quite many 
uh, non-refugee uh, young people would also love to have the occasion to do that. And at the same time, this is precisely what those who are now in those peer groups that are pretty much often sort of only refugees go there. It Somehow breaking that bubble would be really important. And that's something built, I think, from the refugees themselves. And it's not only they who are unhappy about the way in which various sorts of hobby activities are so result-oriented, instead of being community-oriented and sort of oriented towards allowing good social relations to emerge and allowing us to be sociable together. Nick, for the final word, after listening to these young refugees, what do you think we need to do more broadly to live better in a world more worth living in for all? Firstly, I, I really, really loved Ada's answer. I think he really got to the heart of it. With that, I'll just kind of add a bit on to that rather than giving a different perspective. Looking really more generally, I, I think we would all benefit from really reflecting on the, on the ways we move through our lives with other people and in our environment. And to really acknowledge and, and be present with the interdependence we have with them. I think too often we forget that it's the quality and and strength of the bonds between us and other people and with nature. So these bonds that enable us to live well and, and to enable us to envision and create a world worth living in for all. Thank you for listening. We hope that what you have heard sparks thoughts, conversations and action globally and within your local communities. We can live well and help to create a world worth living in for all. You can find us on Twitter and LinkedIn and YouTube. Just search The World Worth Living In Project.